Welcome back. It's your weekly optimism vaccine. I am yet again, not Steve Cuff. Uh, Adam Myros is back hosting once again. Uh, feel free to turn off the podcast now. Uh, Steve will be back <laughs> next week. I promise. Uh, I'm just running out the string here, but uh, we are moving past Sergio Martino and continuing on our October journey with Sean. Uh, and this week we are starting on an important filmmaker of the 1980s who uh, unfortunately passed away earlier this year, uh, Stuart Gordon. And uh, to join in this discussion, of course, uh, the man himself, Sean Glennis. How's it going, Myros? You know, it, it's going. I've about had it with this uh, guest hosting duty, but... Uh, uh, yeah, me too. Thankfully, it nears its end. Uh, Sean, are you, are you just uh, waving your Lakers flag there tonight or what? No, 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 no. Uh, let's hope that there will be no flags waved tonight. All right. I, I personally have my, uh, Mamba Jersey and, uh, I'm ready for the coronation. <laughs> um, also joining us, we, we have kicked Jake to the curb. We have no guests. We are, we are joined by the uh, verbose one himself, Jack Eason. Thank you, Steve. Oh, oh, that hurts. <laughs> Jack, well, Jack, what? Is, not to not to commandeer, but uh, I am curious about both of your guys' histories with uh, this filmmaker, if you don't mind, Myros. Um, if you guys would would tell me, I'd be honored to listen. He's he's a filmmaker I I came upon kind of along the same time frame as. Your Sam Raimi's, your, your stuff of that nature. When you're starting to get into horror, especially of the age we are and the age where you start to get into horror generally, late teens, early 20s, uh, a reanimator is one of those movies. You know, that's one of those that's always mentioned. It's a fun movie. It's an easy entry point. And uh, yeah, Stuart Gordon, he'll catch your eye with reanimator to an extent. And the more you explore, you see he's kind of the... Uh, foremost adapter of hp lovecraft stuff and if you that that ends up being a lot of people's horror journey at some point uh, part of that is is reading lovecraft and seeing how that's affected the genre and that exploration inevitably is tied to Stuart gordon at least that was my experience but yeah i i didn't really encounter him until i was probably just entering college really. i'm actually on the uh, exact same boat with that and um, it was I think my first year in college, I met a guy who was super into horror and had a reanimator on DVD, but he was really irked about it because it was cut, and reanimator was cut for a long time in the UK and Ireland for reasons that are probably mm. fairly obvious when you watch <laughs> reanimator. Um, so he was always complaining about, you know, like it was missing footage, but it was a great movie, and I remember watching it, and it was just, uh, I mean, it, even with caught footage it's a great movie it still was a lot of fun and did some stuff i'd never seen before and then i remember around i think it was around the time when i first came to the u.s uh just happened that this day glow neon green double dvd edition was released you know in a neon green keep case and of course it's uncut so i had to pick up a copy and from there really i, I guess it was just like i really like reanimator where else should i go so like, there was nothing really of his films were really obvious, you know, apparent in the culture. Otherwise, you always had to dig a little bit for it. But, you know, as we discuss, I mean, really from Reanimator, you go from Lovecraft to to From Beyond and then Poe and Masters of Horror gave him a little bit more visibility. I remember that. But, yeah, it's unfortunately his work always has to be dug out a little bit, which is kind of unusual because he kind of touches onto a lot of relatively big cultural touchstones like David Mamet and stuff. But yeah, he's um he's always been kind of a fave of mine. Just got reanimator, as we'll get into, I just think is just a fantastic film. So yeah, it's it's uh, okay. he's he's a good good workhorse horror guy and when he when he peaks he peaks really, really well. 
See, I think a lot of uh, the reason why he probably isn't as prominent in certain circles is Charles Band, frankly. Like, <laughs> I don't Definitely, know. He's, he's, yeah. yeah, you've got that. As a horror fan, you, you start to have a certain uh, association with Charles Band. And it, it's <laughs> not a positive one in general. So uh, that Stuart Gordon ended up being sort of his uh, most prolific, uh, well, prolific most prominent no, 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 most gifted yes <laughs> yes uh, certainly uh, Stuart gordon's work is not representative of full moon entertainment's work generally and that's correct yeah. <laughs> or works. empire before that yeah right mm. and where does brian usna fit in uh usna is gordon's general like writing partner and he produced a lot of his early work and he kind of went on to direct his own films uh also generally under the uh full moon label i believe but uh he set up his own production company later on spain okay. yeah so so the later usna stuff is is his own productions and as far as i understand usna was just a businessman who had money and loved horror movies and he just he put an ad out to make a horror movie and Stuart gordon answered someone who was getting at that point Stuart gordon started in chicago theater with experimental theater um got run out of Wisconsin originally with the theater for a semi-naked incarnation of Peter Pan, uh, which which got them charged with obscenity. And he said that after they got that charge, that half the audience for every one of their shows after that was like 50% policemen. So they were like trying to, they were trying to bust them again. And then they start, when that didn't work, when they didn't, you know, run anything as outlandish as naked Peter Pan, they, uh, they started kidding with building code violations and stuff and stuff they couldn't possibly match. I think one of the ones he mentioned was that they like asked that the floor needed to be lowered at some point. <laughs> Just basically, it, it was made clear to them they weren't welcome. So he came to he came to Chicago uh, and worked pretty successfully in underground theater there and kind of did some pretty good shows and stuff. And it sounds like, from what I can tell, he then, they got big enough that they went to New York with the show and it was a bust. And I think that blew out some of their money, yeah. took some of the, the steam out. And then when they came back to Chicago, the theater was taken over by like a public trust or, or they had to they had to let members of the public in to advise. And the people who came in were dumbasses who knew nothing about the theater. And they're like, you should just do like Hello Dolly or whatever, which is like nothing to do with what they were doing. They were all, you know, new plays, experimental plays, provocative theater. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was he was kind of falling out of love with theater at that point. It was just getting difficult. And then Brian Usna put an ad in for, you know, looking to make a horror movie. And I guess he's using his own money to some degree. So that was where that was the genesis of Reanimator. It looks like they hooked up and they obviously got on really well because their careers kind of intermingle a lot throughout the next mm -hmm. 20 years. Oh, absolutely. So what you're saying is... Uh... Neither of you came to the work of Stuart Gordon through Bleacher Bumps, his first uh, film uh, made for TV about uh, Chicago Cubs fans. No, I mean, that is, uh, I'm pretty sure that was pretty niche even in Chicago, but that was, that was an extension. I mean, that is a play that originated with his stay that theater. way. Um, Joe Mantegna was one of the, Joe Mantegna, uh, Dennis Franz people. These were people who oh, were yeah. in is the theater circle, you know. And, and Mamet was a Chicago guy, right? And yeah, Mamet, he got his break. with okay. sexual perversity in Chicago was one of the big breaks for Mamet. And that was Stuart Gordon okay. directed in, in theater. I believe it was a combination of a couple of Mamet plays. Um, so yeah, you know, Gordon was, he's actually, his, uh, you know, his theatrical run is really interesting. It looks like he did a lot of really kind of Trojan work on just about the level where you break people into bigger industries, but you don't break through yourself so easily. Um, and of course, the, typically of his own career, he Reanimator was a hit, and Reanimator was a big hit, and it was a big hit when released unrated, which was pretty pretty unusual. Mm. You know, they would have had to cut a lot to get an OR rating, and they and Brian Usna decided not to. He just figured, you know what, we'll just we'll get it in theaters in L.A. or whatever, and just you know. We'll just, all the money will be ours. Whatever, you know, whatever works, works. And it really worked hmm. very, very well. So Stuart Gordon thought he was in the movie business. And <laughs> the next thing he knew, he was, uh, he moved his family from Chicago to Los Angeles. And next thing he knew was he was on a plane to Italy. And all like subsequent three or four of his films were all made in Italy. And they were all made with Full Moon or Empire um, backing them. Because I guess that okay. was just the next path. 
Um, so he, there's a there's a bit of a tie between these two episodes, I guess, in that sense, uh, regionally speaking. I mean, this this uh, half of the month and the first half of the month. Sure, sure. Um, but, but that's really interesting. I didn't know uh, the tie to that Chicago uh, company. I mean, obviously, I watched Bleacher Bums, but didn't know the significance of the uh, placement and whatnot. But it also makes sense that Joe Montaigne was in that being a mammoth uh, collaborator. Well, and, and Gordon directed a mammoth uh, work in later in his career here. Yeah. Oh yeah, he did. He did Edmund, a film adaptation right. as well. Which may, yeah, so it's kind of like tying all these pieces that seemed kind of random to me in in making sense of of that. But um, yeah, obviously, Reanimator, I guess, is is usually dubbed his debut. Yeah, yeah, Bleacher Bones was for TV, and also he's co-directing. There's another name on there, um, and the other name I'm guessing is. Probably, oh, right. I'm guessing was an overseer for probably technical stuff. I'm I'm saying this completely guessing, but since Gordon directed the play, I'm pretty sure he was in charge of just corralling the actors. I mean, Bleacher Bones is like it's a one set play, and it's literally just a, a set of bleachers in Wrigley Field. It's a setting, and it's every character is in there and never goes anywhere else. It's like just a one single shot. It's pretty much like you know. They move the camera around a little bit or, or, you know, cut between cameras, but it's really, it's a teleplay. It was, I think it was performed live, mm-hmm. even, you know, or, or recorded live at any rate. So I'm guessing the other guy was probably running tech or corralling the cameras and stuff and making sure everything ransom with more TV experience. So it has a very like, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's from 79, but it has a very like, this is on like channel three and my grandpa is watching this like what is the appeal it, of this really, thing yeah i mean bleacher bones really survives as like a regional curio i think and i, I kind of yeah, I, you exactly. know, I, I think i kind of like i didn't hate it but it's certainly i mean i'm certainly looking from the outside in on it i think what's most interesting about it maybe as something to seek out is that it looks like it's a play that was uh joe mantegna is is credited for conceiving of it but then every single actor is credited for writing and Stuart Gordon as well as director <laughs> which suggests that probably it was improvised largely or was arrived at right. through improvisation so it's it's a very strange kind of loud wild kind of a work and annoying kind of scrappy and everything but I think it probably could give a good sense of what was going on in their theatre to some degree probably cleaned up I reckon what went on in their actual theatre was probably a lot crazier and um, Stuart Gordon has mentioned mm-hmm. that like his his experience with blood effects and stuff was actually um you know started in theater he, or you know it wasn't movies like, okay. when, he, when he started in movies it wasn't like he was suddenly like new to like oh we have blood effects and nudity it's like no his his plays had all yeah. that stuff too done live on, on the night so you know probably a little wilder but yeah I think Bleacher Bones it Bones is certainly it's a Seek it out if you are a completist. It's on YouTube. I don't know. <laughs> or a Chicago fan. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. If you're a some, Cubs yeah. fan, certainly. Or if you just want to see right. Dennis Franz without a mustache, which is freaky to me. <laughs> I knew he was in it, and I still took me like five minutes to find him. I think he's like one of the first guys in the, in the image. I'm like, where is he? No. And it's like, oh shit, that's him without a mustache. I've never seen that before. Sipowitz, bald. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, Myros, police your bums uh, takeaways. Uh, I, my takeaway is you, you can't bring up digressions like this with Jax on the podcast, Sean. We're going to have a six-hour pod about the police your bums. Yeah. Hey, this is for me to learn about this director. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, we're right on track. Well, for October, the spookiest film of all, Bleacher yeah. Bums. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, it spooked me. There was a um, curse. But, but, but it's interesting to learn because... It, it's it's interesting to to otherwise you're just like okay this this film reanimator and the subsequent movies um have a very specific body horror uh aspect to them and interest in in these tactile things and it's it's just kind of it's nice to hear where that came from but we can we can actually get into reanimator if you'd like uh yeah we probably ought to uh, it is his uh, theatrical debut, um, and probably, uh, well, probably. It's his most famous film, I would say. Uh, Reanimator has yeah, become certainly a cult film over the years. 
and it's probably earned that reputation. It's not my favorite of his films, but it's it's certainly always a good mm-hmm. time. Uh, one that anyone who's into 80s horror at all should should definitely seek out Reanimator if you have not already, which is unlikely. But uh, yeah. Uh, it's one of those movies is, that pops up as a reference in a lot of other stuff. Sure. sure. And you're going to see a lot of his regular players emerge here with Jeffrey Combs. Uh, I think he works with, I was, I thought he worked with Gail again, but I don't think he actually does. So, uh, Barbara Crampton, obviously. Yeah. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting film. I'm going to probably kick it back to Jack. Cause he, he's very fond of this one. I am. No, I would uh, reanimator to me is kind of like the perfect horror film. Um, it's one I kind of watch. I add a habit. I watch it at least once a year, uh, which is not something I do with a lot of movies. Um, it's just like it's 85 minutes long. It's mm-hmm. absolutely grotesque. It's got these amazing gore effects, but it's also a really genuinely funny film, imaginative, and it has just this vein of tragedy through it that I think is, you know, I, I just think it's a very well-written film, a very well-imagined film, and it kind of hooks into, despite moving to, you know, modern day and everything you know obviously hp lovecraft's film which or short story which is an extremely short story like they they had to as with many of these kind of lovecraft adaptations you know you couldn't make a feature film out of it you have to you have to draft in a whole world yeah right? these two big ones especially yeah this and yeah, from I mean, beyond this, are both like fucking five page stories yeah <laughs> pretty much it's like it's a sketch of an idea yeah. So they do a really, I think they do a really good job of, Yuzna and Gordon particularly do a really good job of kind of capturing the spirit of the, of the, the, the text and just kind of like bringing something to it that it carries a weight, but it never feels weighty. It's, you know, I find that Reanimator is one of those films that it's not, you know, it's gory and it's crazy, but it's also actually got reasonably sympathetic characters. Uh, Jeffrey Combs as um, Herbert West to the kind of mad, but somewhat sympathetic scientist is uh you know i think a great horror archetype um yeah it's just, it's just a film i kind of find never never drags never gets old always has uh you know kind of there's something that brings you in that you really you can really get a hold of within it um because i mean it fundamentally mm-hmm. it's it's a film about oh god and it will never get old will it it's it's fundamentally a film about men um talking about conquering death, you know, and the importance and brilliance of conquering death through this reanimation serum and basically kind of ignoring or ruining everything that's worthwhile about life. They kind of reduce conquering death to a chemical reaction they can master and they destroy their lives doing this. And, you know, if that's not relatable, both on a personal level, I guess we all, I think, it kind of stick ourselves in boxes and sometimes, you know, kind of step back and wonder why, you know, why, why did we do this? This wasn't the best situation. And for the world as a whole, uh, fading, you know, facing cataclysmic climate change, etc., and just not realizing things, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, I think it will always be prescient. I think it's always kind of instructive and it's just really entertaining. It, it just kind of zips by. So, yeah, I'm, you know, that's what always brings me back to it. It's just this great mixture of horror, horror comedy, and just special effects, just goo and blood, uh, which, you know, I just got to admit, just for some, for whatever reason, just I find that really entertaining. I'm just a child, always. <laughs> it's it's a very entertaining movie. This is the first, um, or th- this was the only Gordon I had seen prior to uh, a few months ago, a couple months ago. Um, when I watched Castle Freak, just isolated from this idea, but, um, uh, I watched it with Cuff, I think two, probably Octobers ago or so. Um, and just kind of like knowing that it was a thing, you know, like I said, that's referenced all the time and, you know, it's kind of like, it has a similar reputation as Evil Dead, not in terms of style or anything like that, but same time period and just like, uh, that cult following and um, when you watch movies of the 90s growing up like it's just always a part of the lexicon um, so honestly I wasn't that interested in it and then um, uh, for whatever reason um, I was just going through uh, you know sort of the canon with Cuff and um, ended up taking to it uh, uh, quite easily I mean it's got such a nice hook uh, 
in the beginning, just like this, this roommate stuff and, and the cat, like it, it's, it's, it's got a nice, um, uh, easy way to really get in to, uh, access, uh, the story here. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Were, were you going to say something, Myros? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, that Jeffrey Combs is kind of lightning in a bottle in this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 100%. For sure. He's a big part of that. He's got that, um, and we can talk, or we can sort of juxtapose this with uh, the next film, uh, his performance. Um, but uh, he's just got such a good, uh, like he looks like Jim Carrey body double, but he is especially the you know the young Jim Carrey, rubber face era, and but he's got this darkness that is like clearly percolating. Um, that uh it seems like gordon really um you know allows him to to play with uh that's very very uh fun to watch yeah i just like the film reanimator really it it flies with combs because he does this fantastic job of being like oddly intense at the beginning but it's sort of like a you know he's he's a scientist he's invested in his research of course he's a little intense and it just sort of, and, and the, you mentioned like the roommate stuff, you know, he kind of rents out a room with Dan Kane, who's the main character, who's kind of like our, our audience surrogate, kind of a straight character. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, he's a little weird, but it's not that weird. And it just sort of spirals out and Combs handles the transformation really well in, in I, I guess, in a kind of way in that there isn't a transformation. Um, everything starts spiraling out of control around herbert west but herbert west west kind of remains exactly the same through it all because he just has a singular goal which is to get the science right and it kind of becomes when the stakes Mm -hmm. become elevated he you know in classic human fashion he believes that the seed of you know any problem can be solved with the same seed that caused the problem like he just digs the hole deeper it's like if you reanimate a corpse and it goes wrong you could reanimate another corpse and maybe that will Mm -hmm. lighten things out you'll learn more and he's just sort of without combs i don't know you know if you could get this sympathetic element to it he's not you know a deranged evil psycho he's just a very fallible person who kind of just can't quite place together the the context of what he's doing uh, which I think is really the the genius of the film is the fact that he really is sort of a, a tragic figure almost, even though he really kind of ruins everything for everyone else because he doesn't know when to stop because he's just sort of placed himself against God. And but but it's kind of like he's playing the race with himself until we get this other doctor character um, who comes in who tries to steal uh, his research and and they kind of they they right. up each other's game. I th- and I think another really funny element throughout the film is that they you know they keep they keep citing altruistic reasons for this. You know, if I defeat death, it will be great. You know, humanity will be forever changed. But the concept of someone stealing their research, you know, absolutely, you know, is un- intolerable to them because it's not, you know, they want the credit. So there's, there's this kind of like, I, I don't know, I just feel like this is a fantastic film that, you know, people, anyone who chases grants, anyone who like works in academia can probably understand this sort of like, small scale wars that that emerge between these factions on topics that are infinitesimally you know interesting to almost anyone else or even comprehensible it's just sort of like this storm in a teacup and the film uh, transpires in like a very limited set of circumstances you know sets it really it, 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 there's a house and there's the the hospital you slash university they're at really like it's almost like a theatrical production itself in terms of a very small cast and crew and location and yeah, it, it Combs is kind of like the, the glue that puts it all together. I think everyone else kind of supports it adequately, but he is mm-hmm. just fantastic as kind of like a wild-eyed idealist who doesn't know when to stop. Right, and he's got this like he's got this intense hubris as well, which and Gale does the same thing playing opposite him, where they completely discount each other in that academic sense. Uh, you know this. I mean, Carl Hill, the antagonist's theory about the will is something that Combs outright refuses to, to even consider, as does Hill outright refuse to consider anything that, that Herbert West is, is positing. But turns out both men are essentially right. 
and uh, um, neither of those yeah. theories are, are, of course, applied uh, to anything constructive in the film, but so it goes. Hearing, uh, Jack, you talk about um, just, uh, I guess, these these elements of Combs's project, but also his ethos. It reminds me of The Fly, um, which we talked about, I think, the first year we did this, Cronenberg's, but... Um, and that sort of obsession and trying things and watching that develop and how fun that is. But um, also the original Fly from the 50s, um, uh, which I watched last year, um, which kind of made me realize how fun it is to watch these science horror films. Or, you know, like I love when they take place in, the, in like a lab and it's all about figuring this thing out. You know, it's all about process. Um, and the fun is that... Uh, with horror, these like supernatural elements or otherworldly elements, like just there's no boundaries. Uh, and, and watching to see where that goes is, is just a really easy uh, and it's, it's a really easy way to generate interest and obviously have to do it well, blah, blah, blah. But um, I think I think the 80s uh, represented kind of a throwback as well to the mad scientist sure. genre. You know, I mean, the mad scientist genre was big in the the really from the 30s and through the 50s or you know in b movies in the 50s particularly but even the 30s universal horror several of them have you know uh, mm-hmm. i think dr x and a few other like you know mad scientist stories they were they were pretty common and because they're you know very much grounded in kind of the gothic kind of frankenstein world which really was kind of the foundation right. for hollywood horror for so long and they kind of fell by the wayside. I mean, the mad scientists in the 60s were more kind of like in more camp and like Dr. whatever, Dr. Goldfoot and like zany nonsense. Um, but, you know, the 80s had, you like you're right, the fly um, reanimator. And the stuff, neon like, the colors weird, started to come in. Yeah, and like weird science and things like that. You know, there, there was kind of more this throwback to like kind of crazy uh, kind of like science. And you know, even back to the future, I guess, Dr. Brown, there was, it, it seemed like the mad scientist yeah. was back on track in the 80s. Um, but Reanimator kicked in, I guess, what was 85? I can never remember when this was released. Yeah. I think it was 85. So I guess it was kind of midway through. It didn't start it off, but I think it certainly, I, I would consider it probably one of the great mad scientist films. It's interesting how much of its air, like comparing it to Cronenberg is. Uh, fruitful. I, I especially find with the next film we'll talk about, it has a very uh, similar tone to a lot of Cronenberg, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a quintessential body horror film. This this is much more madcap to me, uh, perhaps why yeah. I don't connect with it uh, quite on the same level. I always have fun with the movie. It's just not a personal favorite. I, I appreciate a hell of a lot about it, and I appreciate some of the elements of it. It's almost like this is is sort of like the best adaptation of something like Pet Cemetery, even very similar themes, even similar plot structures mm-hmm. with the dead cat and the, you know, reanimating the wife at the end. It, it is in many ways similar to King's story, which of course makes sense considering how much King took from Lovecraft, but uh, sure. Yeah. Obviously the tone is much less dour. This thing's just got such a kinetic energy. A lot of that is due to Jeffrey Combs, but Gordon, deserves a lot of the credit too because this thing it is it, it just moves it moves and it moves and it moves like you expect this sort of hubris clash and this antagonism between hill and west to to kind of linger you you'd expect almost in a normal hollywood film five or six scenes of these classroom stuff and and here it's like nothing you know it's one they establish it they move on and they move on and they move on this, this never stops moving it's breakneck pace the whole time well, you got that score, which uh, <laughs> is a very original score, pulsating. Oh, Lord. Uh, throughout. Yeah, Richard Band decided that it would be uh, cool to just throw Psycho's score on top of this, except make it a little stupider. Well, to, and, and let's be honest, Adam, he's correct. It is really cool. Yeah. But it is yeah. also, I'm not sure how legally <laughs> you managed to get away with it. That's its own mad scientist trick, frankly, however they managed to. But it does have. I definitely see the madcap stuff. Like I'm thinking about like the, you know, the trench coat, <laughs> like walking into the room past the security guard reading boudoir magazine. I can't recall the, I can't recall the, the original, the, the other writer on this, but he did. I mean, he, he called up Gordon famously as kind of an anecdote and said, she told him like he was writing the film and he said, uh, 
Like, Stuart, I, I think I just wrote the first visual pun, and it was basically the scene where the decapitated Dr. Dr. Hill uh, sexually abuses, effectively, um, Barbara Crampton's character, because it's basically, it's a, it's a disembodied head giving head. And I mm. think it's a very good summation of this film that operates on, I think, a legitimately successful vein of tragedy. I think it does mine a very kind of an old school kind of like core block of drama in terms of its its tra- its its you know drama structure. But um, is also yeah absolutely kind of a bit childish, a bit insane, a little bit just kind of like you know too much and too much being exactly the correct quantity of whatever it's doing at any time. Um, yeah, it, which is, I think, kind of half the fun. It's a very classical film in a lot of ways. And then, but with this 80s excess inflection <laughs> combining to, for me, just like absolute, you know, kind of cinematic, perfect uh, kind of a recipe. It's it's just one of those films that, like I say, I just come back to. It's like, it's never not fun to watch this. Yeah, he, he Gordon disrespects your time. I'll say that. Uh, you know, th- this movie has a lot. You could say it as too much. And then if we move to From Beyond, uh, how it could have this much plot happening in 85 minutes is like a grand mystery, but so it does. Uh, Anyone have anything else on uh, Reanimator or shall we move on? I'm good. Say move on. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So his next film, uh, a year later, uh, shockingly, uh, a substantially higher budget, but still uh, working with Empire here and, and Charles and Richard Band. Uh, perhaps one of the film's uh, greatest shortcomings is, is Richard Band's involvement, but that could be said for many a film. Um, yeah, this is another Lovecraft adaptation as well. It's called From Beyond. It is uh, not quite as well known as Reanimator, but for my money, it's probably Gordon's best film. Yeah, that that's that's kind of uh, that was. That's my thought as well. I think, Myros, you and I might be on the same page. I guess we'll find out as far as why that is, um, too, just based on your thoughts on Reanimator. But um, I was taken, you were talking about sort of the plot of this uh, compared to Reanimator. I thought this was just a perfectly paced movie, um, which was not why it's my favorite Gordon that I've seen yet, but um, definitely impressive. Um, But... I think what I love here, besides the fact that the body horror is great, um, is, and it also, again, has this central science experiment uh, about this sixth sense being built and taking over this uh, machine, becoming sentient, whatever. Um, It has a level of sexual perversity, kind of like we... Uh, saw in some of the Jolly that we talked about that uh, seems to really tap into something personal that I don't think is in Reanimator. I'd agree. I I think this has it. This does my favorite thing about eighties horror, essentially, um, which is for whatever reason there was it uh, maybe five or six years, and this is driven by Cronenberg to be sure, where we're really looking into physical manifestation of uh, various odd mental, uh, what people would call sort of illness or deformity or abnormality. But, you know, just the way this film sort of uh, makes flesh uh, this man's sadism and his perversity and yeah, it's just, it's very realized, it's very interesting, and associating it with this sort of pseudoscience of the pineal gland, and and the way it just continues <laughs> to change and evolve, and you never know exactly where this movie's going, but uh, at every moment, I was I was stimulated, much much like the resonator stimulated the, the various characters. <laughs> I think I like uh, that everybody's complicit, right? Or like everybody is uh, willing, you know, everybody is at the mercy of whatever is going to happen. So it kind of like uh, strips away, uh, at least for part of the runtime, very strict lines of who's good and who's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like my take on From Beyond, and I, you know, for me, I suppose Reanimator is this kind of like, it seems like such a culture block that it's always kind of like, 
I don't know. It, it's 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 its own thing for me, kind of separate almost mm-hmm. of of just being a standalone movie. I think probably we break it down nuts and bolts from beyond. It's certainly every bit as good of film. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at it in relation to Reanimator because I am, um, and also in relation to the films Stuart would subsequently go on to make that, um, because I think some of those we won't go into in major detail, but stuff like Dolls and Robot Jocks, which are films that are not badly made, but are significantly weaker films. I, I could yeah. scarcely believe anyone would prefer Dolls to From Beyond, for example. <laughs> um, and I think what's missing from those weaker films and what really enlivens reanimator and from beyond and fortress and several of his other his best works is a sexual perversity that i think absolutely you know i don't know Stuart gordon is funny in that like i mean his wife carolyn purdy gordy is in everything i think they were married even when they were in theater so they were you know he was already married when he went to these movies and she is in every single one of his movies um so it's like, I, you know, he's kind of like a button-down, you know, married, middle-aged guy, but he makes real kinky movies. And it's funny, you know, Reanimator has this element where, you know, the, these great doctors, uh, you know, particularly uh, whatever, Dr. Hill, the main antagonist, uh, you know, utilizes his incredible serum to basically hit on the Dean's daughter. You know, he's <laughs> such a puerile, stupid thing. But, you know, he's driven by this just absolute sexual impulse from beyond is interesting in that it particularly i think the standout watching at this time is barbara crampton is in both films yeah and absolutely barbara crampton is i think she takes over the herbert west role in from beyond she becomes the person who can't quite stop things she's given more and, agency yes, that's for and sure she she and she has so much more to do here and part of it is i mean and some of it's, it's quite comic i mean she starts she's a buttoned up uh, super sci- <laughs> like scientist psychiatric wonder king that she has her like, great glasses. hair in a bun and the giant glasses and she's very <laughs> reserved I mean it's, it's like a you know it's like a leisure suit Larry caricature um, and of course this this machine this resonator that stem- stimulates the pineal gland uh, creates this you know kind of awakens her sexuality but in a very perverse way um, but yeah it's kind of interesting that she becomes the, the Herbert West character I think and then Jeffrey Combs takes more of a, a straight man thing here and actually becomes kind of a sacrificial lamb in this film. He, um, you know, I guess if he, his closest analog maybe in uh, Reanimator would be Dan maybe Kane, the probably, Dean. Right? I'm not even sure Dan Kane. I think maybe even the Dean. Just oh, someone yeah, who honestly is not even... What about Dean Kane? Yeah, you know, it, Dean, yeah, he's, he's not even he's not even in on it for a large sense. And, then and he, does become, becomes, he does become a victim of, of the experience. Yeah, yeah, well. and he, he basically gets sunk by the whole enterprise by other people who can't quite leave enough alone because in this case, it's, it's considered that schizophrenia may actually be not a mental illness, but people being able to witness another dimension that exists over top our own and, and interact with it. And this is, their their hallucinations, etc. are not hallucinations at all. They're actually a higher cognition. Um, so this, this, this machine allows the two dimensions to exist, but surprise, surprise, the stuff in the other dimension is extremely dangerous and hostile. So, um, it, it, you know, but she can't, her, her whole, her father, it's revealed, uh, succumbed to schizophrenia and was mistreated in hospital, etc. So she's very driven to find a cure and an explanation beyond, you know, madness. You know, you, if someone is mad, they have no value. They're, they're discarded by society. If you can reframe and improve that, it's actually, you know, uh, a different view. It's a different way of perceiving the universe. Then, you know, they don't get discarded. Suddenly it becomes a much more, you know, they, they become... Uh, sympathetic and uh, you know kind of worthwhile human beings again you know there's kind of that element tugging and you you can understand what drives her but it's it's driven again in this very arc kind of like what would say arch fashion i mean she she ends up in bondage gear in an attic Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and it's fantastic it's just such a zany kind of a thing and the, the main doctor uh, uh what's his name the the main doctor who goes in dr pretorius uh, yes pretorius that's it i was coming with pythagoras and <laughs> that's like, a no, very that's uh, lovecraft one. name and indeed yes. from the original story and yeah so so dr pretorius is is apparently into s&m kinky sex because he is um he's impotent and so you know he's lured into this other dimension because it creates a kind of a sexual possibility for him 
And, you know, again, I think this kink underlines this work, this kind of, you know, everything that humans aspire to has some kind of a sexual dynamic. And I think Gordon is fascinated with that within these films. Um, That, you know, everyone is is kind of dragged along and ends up dragging other people with them on kind of uh, dressed up sexual impulses. It's not really about, you know, me being horny. It's about saving the schizophrenics or, you know, conquering death. But, you know, fundamentally, it's kind of like a sex drive. It's a, a masturbatory release. Uh, and, you know, when that leaves Gordon's films, I think it really, his films kind of just don't work as well. Whatever that might say about yeah. him. <laughs> I guess like Hitchcock, it's like the sex is is kind of baked into his best work. Well, you could say the mm-hmm. same for Cronenberg, quite honestly. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is certainly of somewhat reminiscent of early Cronenberg, like the brood, stuff of that nature. But um, what it really very specifically reminds me of in, in its presentation and tone and content is, is Hellraiser. Like those are kind of mm. two movies that have a very particular feel to them that I, I seldom seen in any other movie since. I think this is just so visually more interesting than uh, I mean I don't even need to compare it to to Reanimator but it's just a it's just a really visually interesting film the way that he shoots that lab uh, or even the house um but the way that he shoots that that lab and and the neon colors that come in um and the way that uh you know Barbara Crampton like wanting the machine and um just just the way that he uses that space and and integrates in um neon is is just often very nice to look at yeah it's certainly i mean this is a product effectively of the italian film industry this was this was shot entirely in rome and um, the 1980s the italian film industry was kind of disintegrating but there was still money locked in i think um the, the way the italian tax codes work is that they're you know kind of money made by films in italy has to stay in italy uh, so which which would then mean that the only way for for film studios to utilize their profits was to film there. So it kind of created this kind of satellite industry in, in Rome. Um, and this is kind of on the tail end of that in the 1980s. There were still, you know, kind of some low budget productions. The 80s was kind of like the last great, you know, kind of like solid decade for Italian productions. The 90s, things really thinned out. And yeah, it, it's kind of very apparent that it's it's the work of that he's got a decent budget behind it and it's the work of just very seasoned professionals i mean I, i'm sure the italian crew on this were really you know kind of just knew their mm-hmm. stuff were able to put it together and then also like so many 80s films it has just the exact perfect timeline that if you look at the special effects team on this like it's like you see uh, a gregory nicotero Mm-hmm. credited in there and he was uh i think Stuart Gordon said he was just out of high school pretty much making this movie you know and greg nicotero is now you know he's he is one of the go-to special makeup effects people he's in anything with a budget that requires like horror effects like that he is the man he's the guy you'll hire hmm. you know and it's kind of like that, that the 80s was that time when these this kind of just a wave of special makeup effects kids came out and were kind of pushing themselves really hard and working way harder than they probably should have for the money they were being paid, which I'm sure was fuck all, um, and just doing incredible things. And From Beyond has just um, incredible special effects and kind of multiple different teams. Yeah. You have, like, the monsters. We also have these floating fish creatures. You have, like, they might have had oh, a whole yeah. goo department. I mean, there's an enormous amount of goo in this. Actually, Gordon joked about that, that after the problems with reanimator with blood... They reckon, you know, let's just switch it out for goo. It'll be fine. And it absolutely was not fine. The MPAA <laughs> uh, figured that one out pretty quickly. So luckily, it's mostly been restored now. If you buy this film on Blu-ray, I'm pretty, it's like an unrated version. And they managed to restore most of what was cut out. Um, but yeah, it's a very uh, wet film, uh, certainly. <laughs> yes, and the back half involves a, a consumption of many human brains, so uh yeah it, it, it oh, is yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it is certainly uh graphic we'll say that but uh if you're into this sort of stuff and you've not seen from beyond uh it, it's probably in my it's one of my we'll say 10 favorite uh, horror movies in the decade for sure it's this fantastic. Was, it was certainly it was certainly a nice certainly a nice surprise for me not that i was doubting it but i i didn't expect it to be as 
good as it is. Yeah, it, um, I, for, so yeah, for I, me, it's just it's probably Gordon's most complex horror film. It's it's something where he is investigating a, a great deal of stuff, uh, and uh, also it's just so visually inventive. And that's something that falls by the wayside in the next decade. We'll say is that as he's kind of constricted in in budget after empire folds and he kind of washes out of Hollywood proper and goes back to Charles band and his full moon band. Uh, yeah. Uh, some of the visual inventiveness does dry up. His films never stopped being interesting. I'll say that he's, he's always got something to explore and I will see with some of his later stuff that it, like something like Dagon, it does not have the budget to discuss and it looks far, far worse, but it's, it's still, a film made by a craftsman mm -hmm. uh, who cared yeah. about the source material and uh, oh, thoroughly investigates it. I would I would add in on this as well that I mean Barbara Crampton who's kind of like a at this point kind of like a real grand dame of horror mm -hmm. uh, would I think she's she's on record saying this is her favorite of all of her films, which you know and I understand mm -hmm. why because I think she really is the you know it, it's kind of interesting that allows the scream is also the, the driving force of the entire narrative in this film um, it's, it's actually a, a pretty interesting role for a woman in an 80s horror and an 80s horror was not particularly good with women characters so it's still it's still within the box of saleable 80s sexiness but she's there's a lot more gears turning here than you would reasonably expect in almost any other 80s horror of that time other than like Adam you mentioned Hellraiser which I think is another film with a great female presence absolutely um, rare and rare in the decade yeah uh check this movie out if you haven't uh very much worth your time it's uh, excellent stuff and uh yeah you could only wonder where gordon would go from here and where he went you you might not expect but we we're not going to cover everything in the midst of that we're going to actually move to his his jump to the the big leagues it's it's not really a horror movie, but it is uh, certainly got some undertones, and it's it's worth looking at. So we decided that the third film we'd cover on today's episode would be Fortress from 1992. Uh, this is far and away his largest budget to date. Uh, he is working under a major studio. I don't remember exactly which one it is, but it, this is widely distributed. This was a this was a real movie, uh, starring Christopher Lambert and Kurt Wood Smith and uh, everyone's favorite villain, Vernon Wells. Uh, anyone have any thoughts on Fortress? Where, where have I seen Lambert before? Uh, you've seen him in Highlander or perhaps Mortal Kombat. Oh, sorry, he was Oh, okay. That's yeah. right. Yeah, Fortress is, uh, I'm, I'm going to come out and say, Fortress is always, every time I watch it, I watch it, four or five times, I guess, over the years. It is better than I remember it every single time I watch it. Uh, to the point where I'm now more inclined to Stumford as being like a quasi very good film. Um, it's also more of a horror than I remember <laughs> it every time I watch it. It's it's And it's kind of like um, to, to like outline the storyline, there's a weird element to the story, but essentially it's a kind of a dystopian future piece in America. It has a one-child policy and this this couple, Christopher Lambert and his, his wife, um, have a second child. Uh, the glitch in all of this is that for some reason, even though a one-child policy would be considered, you know, immoral and not something that anyone should have to kowtow to or give any credence to, the film still goes out of its way to explain that their first child died at birth, so they didn't actually break the law by having another kid. I don't know why that's relevant at all. It doesn't actually matter. Um, but if for some reason they still need like in the, the face of fascistic dystopian laws they still decided they needed to clarify that this couple didn't actually break those laws which seems like kind of a pointless thing but anyway I bring that up because it confuses me all the time but other than that the film is they, they get sent to this maximum security prison and what plays out is a surprising like a film that I feel is uh, surprisingly adept in its kind of leftist commentary on class solidarity it's it's kind of like it plays into a lot of the the standard cliches of the prison movie but i mean we have a privatized prison they they kind of like the intro yeah. when they're wheeled into the prison is that you know uh, they're paid 27 dollars by the government every day for each prisoner you know which is frankly not 
Yeah, that's real. Yeah. It's like a real thing. It's very prescient stuff. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, um, uh, Jack, for you to elaborate on the horror uh, stuff because this was more analogous to me with uh, Robot Jocks, which is also a dystopian horror film that is kind of like uh, it's kind of like something Philip K. Dick would write and then not publish because it's not good <laughs> enough. Um, but uh, but that's sort of the the tone of it, the, you know. Um, but uh, I think that this. I, I wonder how much we can we can discuss when I say how much of this is elements, a prison. I, I'm kind of talking of like a snippet. There's a dream sequence that I think leans heavily into horror. Um, where he sees, his, I mean, and it's part of the thing is that the, the prison starts invading people's minds, you know, and you can, you're, you're, you're yeah. placed in your dreams. Um, and there's a sequence right. where, where Lambert is, is kind of like imagining his wife and indeed by the end of the dream sequence is literally like gouging his own eyes out. And it's one of those sequences that I think, you know, kind of heavily lines back to From Beyond, a film which involved a lot of eyeball destruction etc you know if there's a couple of kind of strong horror images in it it's an extremely gory film to begin with it's you know it's kind mm-hmm. of got a horror yeah. i mean it, it, as i talk about like a, le- a leftist perspective on the film it's really a film about a private industry purchasing your body the prison system being that that it, it gets dominion of the of the person's body and controls it, and everyone's injected with this, like, controlling device that can either electric shock them or, if need be, explode and kill them. So, you know, you are placed in your dreams. You, you Basically, you, your body is owned for labor, um, and then the prisoners are... Yeah, how much of this mm-hmm. is a prison movie, and how much of it is actually just a movie about the panopticon in everyday society? Like, uh using the prison as a larger metaphor well i think that's it i think it's just like it's it's a very good prison movie it goes because i think it it acknowledges by going just a little further ahead in the logic of how a prison is structured particularly like the american prison system is structured and this stuff maybe in the early 90s because people weren't talking about it that much outside of i'm guessing black communities were talking about it a lot but regular white people it wasn't a problem it was fine you know um and this film just goes a little bit further with one-child policy, which I guess invokes China as, you know, the grand antagonist to American freedom. Um, but, like, honestly, in 2020, we're we're pushing closer and closer. I mean, there's a lot of eco-fascism rhetoric in this film about overpopulation, about scarce resources. That's why we have our one-child policy. Um, they're, you know, they're breeding new people in this film that, you know, you know, are more efficient. They don't need food the same way. There's kind of this idea of a crunch um, being resolved, you know, an, an ecological problem being resolved through science. But we're not really, we're not really aware of the extent of the problem. And that it's a massive government ploy to kind of through private corporations to control people. There's a profit margin. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's yeah. I mean, I think this is aged so gracefully. And it's so bad in a way that it has aged as gracefully as it has. It's a really interesting film. It kind of captures the you know, the squabbling between the prisoners, which is, you know, kind of, it's pretty standard in a prison movie that the prisoners squabble with each other. And eventually they kind of unify their beliefs and they start to realize, you know, if we band together, we're, you know, we can escape. But I feel like in this film, they really kind of captured the idea that these prisoners realize that, you know, they're banding together, not just to escape, but also to acknowledge that like the fundamental precept of their entire incarceration is false there's just a false consciousness to the mm-hmm. prisoner mentality they are they you know they're they're not you know they're they're not guys being punished they are victims of something that is tremendously unfair and and terrible and so you know yeah every time i watch this film it just it gets just a little better it's it's it kind of crams in it's a lot smarter than it needs to be and then again ratchets up the violence uh, in ways and has that and also has that sexual element to it in terms of Kurtwood Smith is basically a genetically modified sexless eunuch robot who basically is a (laughs) hard-on for Lambert's wife uh, because you know and and can't he can't realize that he can't have sex so he keeps her around as like a totem as like a weird kind of like sexual plaything 
you know, and this is where I think Stuart Gordon flies. This is the the meat and potatoes of his work is kind of like violence and sex. And he, he modulates them very, very well. And yeah, this kind of film it works really well for me, honestly. It does have that body horror stuff in it. I have more structural issues with it, I suppose. I, I, I agree that the Kurtwood Smith is the standout in this movie for me. Like his performance is kind of against type and quite fantastic. And the segments where he is dealing with his physical reality with the wife of Christopher Lambert uh, is fascinating stuff. I, I was riveted to it and thereby became increasingly less interested when they cut away to you know, four guys sitting in a prison cell getting shocked in the intestines. Mr. 187. Ah. The, the guy who's super into that Samuel Jackson movie that hasn't come out yet. Well, that's the problem is <laughs> they killed Vernon Wells so early that uh, I just couldn't keep interested in that they uh, do. prison segment. <laughs> they, they kill him early, but they also, like, he becomes, you know, in a weird way, he becomes a tragic figure, which is a really strange uh, transformation yeah. in the context of the film. Um, but I mean, I agree with you, Funder. Like, this is not batting on the same level as Reanimator or From Beyond. It's got more structural issues. It's got a lot more moving parts, so things diffuse through it. And um, Lambert is not a great leading man. Yeah, in that, any... but he, what he does, what he does with the physical space again is is quite remarkable. Like, it seems like it's clearly a cheaper production, but man, like, there's there's some really good visual stuff going on that I don't know how a lot of it was accomplished accomplished you could see him as an actor's director truly here too like you might think Lambert doesn't come across as a leading man here but this is easily the best I've ever seen Lambert like this is a, a <laughs> ripper is... of a Lambert performance but you <laughs> you true. almost you almost can't help but envision what this would be like if if they'd had the money to get like Schwarzenegger there or something you'd be like oh jeez, oh. yeah yeah and Combs has a small role in this as well. And I feel like Combs doesn't come through as well here. He's playing again kind of like an agitated, weaselly kind of a a guy. Um but he's he's sidelined a little more here, unfortunately. I don't think he can light things up as well as, as he does on say reanimate or from beyond. But yeah, you know, I, th I think the, it's a great ideas flick. I think, you know, it's kind of like it's absolutely a, a trashy B-movie prison film, but then it just kind of does a lot of extra lifting you're not expecting. But it still yeah. resides within that mode. And I, I agree, Sean, where there's like there's uh, it's some really great effects shots and the kind of a scale to the film. But then I feel like that's also, you know... Like, sad as it is, I feel like that's just like a scale of film that existed in the 80s and into the early 90s that we just kind of has evaporated um, of kind of... The same with Robot Jocks. Well, yeah, Robot Jocks is, is visibly uh, less well-funded than this, um, <laughs> as much as it works. But, um, yeah, it's like this, this whole kind of like level of, of filmmaking of kind of, I guess, like the, the moderate budgeted film or the medium budget film is kind of like, you know, we know the bottom has fallen out of that in, in the film industry. Everything either costs like three million or three hundred million and nothing exists in the space in between. And this is exactly where a film like this works, where it's kind of like trashy enough to like hit a wide audience, but also got enough of a, a budget to kind of create some unusual spaces and interesting things. I mean, the, the robot soldiers, the um, interesting enough, actually, the, the uh, computer that controls the whole prison is this time voiced by Stuart Gordon's wife. That's how she gets into this one. That adds an extra strange counterpoint in the film because the computer keeps chiding Kurtwood Smith for being sexually uh, inquisitive. So there's kind of an interesting counterpoint there between Gordon's own pursuits of like kind of naked ladies and violence and stuff within within his own films. I don't know, like it's just sort of a strange. I mean, obviously they're very much a theater couple. I think that's probably a, a, assured, but just sort of that strange kink that zigzags through his films. I think it's just kind of funny that the the robot is is almost like the scolding wife in a sense of going like, "Stop that! We have a job to do." Um. And of course, it all it all blows up. Everything blows up in this movie, uh, which is you know very satisfying. It's more films should end like that. Frankly, imagine how much better a lot of A twenty four films would be if they just ended with a ginormous explosion instead of whatever they currently. <laughs> <end with. laughs> yes, it was quite the ridiculous like T two riff or something like it, it, that truck. 
uh, drive to Mexico and then is somehow taken over again by the computer to uh, launch one final assault on uh, Lambert and wife as she's in labor. Uh, apparently, this ending was cut out of uh, theatrical release, I believe, but uh, it has fortunately been restored because, boy, it, it's so important to the narrative. <laughs> I mean the film's still good. Yeah, I mean this this long this is a I think ninety five minutes long. So I think if you cut out that sequence, you'd be under ninety minutes, which would bring <laughs> it back to what Gordon was doing. So uh, yeah, it's kind of strange that Coda was left in there. He he, you know, he knew when to end everything else. And you're right. I mean that that final Coda doesn't really offer anything. It's just further explode. It's like they just asked for one more big explosion. But if they did that, why did it? Why did they cut it out afterwards? Like the biggest explosion in the whole movie. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I you can feel some compromises in this one, even though it was a higher budget film. You can tell there were other voices in the room than Gordon. But um, it's still an entertaining movie if you're into the prison genre, especially. Uh, this this has some pressure politics and mm-hmm. is, is worth your time. Uh unless anyone has any other pressing thoughts on 1992's Fortress. Uh, we should probably wrap up here. I, I will say I was wondering about this movie and if Gordon just hated working in the studio system or what, because this was a success. I mean, not like some raging success, but it, it made money. And he kind of went out of Hollywood back to back to low budget film uh, shortly thereafter. But I think that probably had more to do with the follow up Space Truckers, which was uh uh, pretty big boondoggle. But yeah, in the meantime, he uh, he and Yuzna were heavily involved in creating the beloved children's film, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And they made a mint off that, so God bless them. Uh, so let's move on to putovers. Uh, I personally have not seen anything. I've been prepping for two podcasts. I'm just going to put over uh, Ken Forey in a banana hammock because it's pretty glorious stuff. Um <laughs> Jack, what do you got for us? Uh, I'm going to put over uh, Shaw Brothers' film, uh, Human Lanterns, which is currently streaming in the U.S. on Amazon Prime. If you have Prime membership, it's free. Uh, It's from 1982. It is a martial arts horror film, which I think we can all agree there aren't enough of those. Um, Hmm. And they're certainly not seen well enough. But um, Human Lanterns... What's it called? uh, It's called Human Human Lanterns, Lanterns. And it is... Essentially, a, a story about uh, a serial killer who skins people alive to make lanterns, which is fair enough. But it is, in kind of typical <laughs> Shaw Brothers fashions, it is just a spectacular looking film made for not a lot of money. Um, they're kind of like Hammer, really, in Britain, in that like all their movies look like a million bucks and cost like a fraction of that. But it's it's just a really solid horror film in that it combines kind of whoopsia... Um, like wireworks martial arts and stuff with this deranged serial killer in this kind of like ghoulish mm. outfit he moves strangely it fits really well with it it's, it kind of just reminded me that honestly I, I don't watch enough Hong Kong horror and particularly of that vintage in the yeah. early 80s and 70s so it's free on Amazon so uh, absolutely highest recommendation to check it out it's, it's very entertaining great fights a lot of blood uh, yeah good good stuff all around uh, Sean, what do you got for us? Um, I have also been watching uh, horror outside of the stuff for the pod. I've been um, trying to fill in my Val Luton gaps. Obviously, I've seen the the Tournier films, which are like three of the best American films ever made. But I hadn't seen the Mark Robson or uh, Robert Wise films. And so I just made my way through a few of the uh robson or robson ones and um uh it's cool to see that same touch i don't think they're as good as the tournier films at least not on first watch um but um they're they have the same play with darkness and the unknown and uh just the poetry of this chiaroscuro uh stuff but um i think probably uh the best one or at least my favorite this this go round has been Isle of the Dead, which is a Karloff uh, film, and it's set it's set during the 1912 plague, um, and uh, yeah, it, it's just got some really really gorgeous uh, mise en scène and um, cool spiritual stuff, and it actually did did spook me. There's a moment in it that is legitimately scary, um, 
So yeah, Isle of the Dead, but uh, Seventh Victim, Bedlam, you can't really go wrong. Uh, there you are. A couple of good recommendations and, uh, you know, not all of them measure up to Ken Forey in a banana hammock, but uh, so it goes. <laughs> As you folks probably know, those of you who've listened in the past, we are a Patreon-supported podcast. Uh, any help you can throw us there, Optimism Vaccine on Patreon. Um, so, yeah. That would help us out. We can do as little as $3 a month. Uh, and you'll get our entire backlog of oddities and uh, an upcoming series we're working on for Halloween. Uh, beyond that, if you don't have the cash to throw at us, it's understandable. We're in a pandemic, people. Uh, you could always go to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, five stars. Always appreciate it. Talk as much shit as you want. It's the stars that matter. Uh, help us out with that algorithm. Just like in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, sure. Just like Hollywood. Uh, oh, speaking of stars, uh, Paula, Dustin, your stars. I'm sure we can uh, further stimulate your pineal glands by mentioning your name on the air, as you <laughs> are so generous as to support us. Uh, let's just give us some contact information. You can't find me online. Uh, if you want to talk to me, uh, just reach out to us, uh, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Uh, you could also tweet at Optimism Vaccine. Uh, we are at Optimism Vaccine on Twitter. And uh, Sean, where do people find you? Letterbox, Sean Glynis. That's G-L-I-N-I-S. Uh, Jack, the people, they want to talk to you. Where? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Real Jack Eason. So, yeah, draw me a line. Uh, as opposed to false Jack Eason. Uh, yes, the Christian singer. He's a fake. <laughs> Uh, that about wraps it, people. We will be back one more time in October here to talk Stuart Gordon and his later works. Uh, join us then. Mm-hmm.